0: Get to preach now would you pray with me <laughs> lord thank you for the preaching that has already been done the declaration uh, of the word the scripture being read uh, by the body of christ the the scripture being exegetically spun into words and songs lord the prayers that have been prayed the offerings that have been given bless you lord and now bless our time of uh, of digging deeper into your word Would you help us to come to more than just an understanding of what it is your word is saying to us, but would you transform us, Lord? Would you be born in us afresh as we celebrate Christmas? Amen. Amen. Christmas Sunday. We are still in the season of Christmas, even though it's a little let down after Christmas Day. Uh, It is Christmas season until... January 6th, which is Epiphany. So, so excited about that. So kids, if you're a little disappointed, just tell your parents you need to keep eating treats and stuff. And I don't know. Sorry. We are having cookies after service. There we go. On the way to this, this day, we've been marching through the season of Advent, which leads up to Christmas, and we've been looking at the reasons Jesus was born. Why did God become flesh and dwell among us in the first place? And Over the weeks, we've looked at four things. We looked at how God, (coughs) sorry, how God was born, Jesus was born to bring justice, how he was born to forgive us from our sins, how Jesus was born to gather a family of all the nations, of all different kinds of people together, and how Jesus was born to feed the hungry, the hungry in soul and the hungry literally. Put those four together, and we see that Jesus was born for nothing short of changing the entire way the world works, of rescuing creation itself. But there's a bit of a danger in just talking about the reasons Jesus came, and there's a bit of a danger in just talking about these big ideas like justice and freedom from sin and all of these things. And the the danger is that we turn Jesus and the Christmas event into just a bunch of ideas. And the dangerous thing about that is, pretty soon you don't need Jesus anymore, you just need a bunch of teachings about Jesus. Thankfully, the gospel is not primarily about ethics, it's not primarily about morals, it's primarily about Jesus. And near the end of the first century, there was a church in Asia Minor that had been influenced by some false teachers. These false teachers were telling people that they knew God personally in a spiritual sense, But Jesus was kind of irrelevant to them. They didn't like the idea of a God who would become weak, and they didn't like the idea of a God who would become a human being, and they certainly didn't like the idea that they needed a rescuer. So they scrubbed Jesus out of the picture and taught that they were righteous before God on their own merit. They were teaching a religion that focused on the self. An interior, if you feel good, it must be doing, you must be doing well, it's just me and God, forget the rest of the world kind of religion. They picked the wrong church to mess with, however, because the bishop of the church of Asia Minor, in which they were messing with, had overseeing it the bishop, St. John himself, the apostle, one of the 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest three disciples, And John wrote a series of letters to the church to combat these false teachings. Letters that we call now 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And it's to 1st John 4, 7 through 12 that we're going to turn this evening. This passage, I believe, reveals the core reason that Jesus was born in the flesh. Would you stand with me as we read this text? Again, 1st John 4, 7 through 12. And kids, if you want a little something extra to do, You could count how many times you hear the word love, or loved, or loves, any word having to do with love. See how many times it shows up in these 15 verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not know God, I'm sorry, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God And God abides in him. By this, love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. And the one who loves, or or the one who does not love his brother or sister whom he has sent, cannot love God whom he has not even seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother and sister as well. The word of the Lord lots of love, right? 28? 28, 38, 29. I did make a mistake there when I read that sentence again, so it actually is 27. Some of you got 29, because you're you're right, I would have actually said the word love 29 times. Also, the word beloved has the word agape in it as well, so if you want to get all technical, there's almost like 30 places where love is in these 15 chapters, so what do we think this is about? Oh, you're so smart. Okay. Jesus is born
1: for love.
0: The false teachers in the church that John was writing to were not loving. They were teaching a spiritual selfishness devoid of Jesus, devoid of sacrifice. That's what they didn't like. That's what we all don't like is sacrifice. But John is having none of it. The false teachers said they knew God without Jesus. But John says the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Two clarifications. Stella, did you just hear what I said? I said, God is love. Couple clarifications here. First, the negative. John does not say, love is God. The Bible does not say, love is God. There is nowhere in the Bible where it says, love is God. And for that, I am thankful. Because if love were God, we would have a huge philosophical problem on our hands god in theory would be defined by how we define love and what is love well if we allowed our culture to define love for example would it be something out of a pop song talk about loving my baby right what 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 would love look like if our culture defined it would it just be a warm fuzzy feeling or an erotic feeling In our culture love is such an overused term we use it to sell cars love What makes a Subaru a Subaru, right? What if we were to get outside of our culture and take a historical survey of all cultures in all time on the concept of love? How would God be defined then? And what if we were to rely, rely just on our own personal insights as to what love is? Even in a room of this relative small size, we would have a tremendous variance of ideas about what love is. If we get the order reversed and say that love is God, then we're giving an incredible, and I mean not credible, amount of power to that definition. We, and in fact, whatever we think love is, we are putting that definition on God. And that's a kind of a dangerous thing to do. So what is love then? See, my point is that love doesn't define God. God defines love. And love is made known to us in a person in history on Christmas. It's made known to us on the Christmas event as God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Love is an action. Love is an action of God rescuing us, giving us eternal life through the sending of Jesus. Love is God initiated, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, to be a, fancy word alert, propitiation for our sins. In other words, God defines love by covering our sins, taking them away through his birth and through his death on the cross. He pays our sin debt and gives us new life. It's okay to say amen. All kids, say amen. That's important stuff. Propitiation. Woo! Jesus was born for love. And maybe this will help us get our minds around what John is saying. John also wrote an account of Jesus' life. It's called the Gospel of John. And um, Lucy and Ryan actually read that passage that I'm referring to here. In the first chapter, uh, he writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus is the explanation of God. Literally, He exegetes God. Jesus reveals who God is. Jesus defines love. No Jesus, no love. No Jesus, no God. So kids, if you ever wonder what God is like, look in your Bible, read those stories about Jesus. That's exactly what he's like. Now here's the thing about Jesus. He was not born to describe love to you and me or to teach us the definition of love. He was born out of the loving heart of God, out of God's love for you and his love for me, so that we would live and love in the power of God. Listen to the Apostle John. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to to also love one another. This isn't so much, if God so loved us, we should love one another, right? It's more like this. If God so loved us, as in, if God loved us in this way, we ought to also love one another in this way. And how exactly did God love us? Extravagantly, sacrificially, personally, incarnationally, which means in the meat, in the flesh. God became fleshed, a person. He was actually present with all kinds of different people. He didn't remain at a distance and text us little messages like I love you, but I'm not actually there with you. He didn't post his views on Facebook or tweet his thoughts of the day. He didn't send money to an organization that would then send people to hang out with you. He was there in the flesh with the people. Now I've been stressing the fact that Jesus was born as a person in history, that he was actually in Mary's womb that she actually gave birth to him, that he taught like no one else, that he healed people's diseases and sicknesses, that he raised people from the dead. He died, he forgave sins, but after he rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and now reigns over us nearly 2,000 years ago, how is he supposed to be manifest with us today? Any, any guesses? Emma? Yep. yeah, he lives forever with God. But he also lives through, well, let me let John tell us. Chapter, tw- or verse 12. No one has ever seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is made complete in us. Jesus was born for love, Born to reveal God to us, and born to make you and me in lovers. In the nicest way that we're, you know what I'm saying. We are to be filled with God's love and love of the people. We are his expression on earth. Jesus includes you and me in his mission of love. And when we ask, where in the world is God's love today? We ought to be able to point to the church, to the people of God. We, those who abide in Christ, ought to be his expression of love. How? Extravagantly, sacrificially, personally, incarnationally, actually present with people. That's how God loves. We love God because he first loved us. John continues, if someone says I love God but hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen can't possibly love God who he can't see. He who loves God should love his brother and sister also. Now, I have a question because I'm a regular person. I'm not just a preacher. That's a troubling statement to me sometimes because if you're like me, you don't always feel loving. In fact, a lot of times I don't feel, I feel the opposite of love for a lot of people sometimes. I get frustrated. I get angry. What does this passage have to say to us then who don't always feel like loving? Is John then saying, fake it to make it? Just suck it up and do it? Three things are in play here that I think are very important. First, John is not trying to make you and I fearful always keeping score of our motives. He doesn't want us fearing that if we don't love enough, our salvation is in jeopardy. You know what John's writing to is a group of people who were so puffed up and self-righteous that they thought they were beyond the need to have to listen to Jesus at all. They thought that they were beyond the need to extend a hand to any other living person because they were so super spiritual. John is simply saying, if you know God you will become more and more and more like God. If you don't love, you don't know God. He wants people to see that Jesus is the key to the good news, to love. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the gospel, the good news. You are not called to love without Jesus. You can't be expected to, and neither can I. Jesus went to great lengths to rescue us because we needed serious rescuing you see you and i we're not just like a little bit broken we're severely screwed up some of us are hurt we are guilty of hurting we've been damaged and sometimes our fear we like it because it makes us feel sharper in certain moments it gives us an edge our anger sometimes can make us feel stronger Our self-righteousness makes us feel superior. Our insecurity and escapism makes us feel safe from taking on too much responsibility. Our substance abuse numbs us. Our pursuit of affirmation feeds the starving sense of inconsequence in the world. Our narcissism makes sure no one will ever forget us. The living God didn't send Jesus because we're pretty close to getting it right or just needed a little sage wisdom and advice. We needed intervention and rescue. Jesus is not calling us to pretend. He's not calling us to just keep working on it in your own strength until you figure it out. You know what he's calling us to is to surrender, to confess our need for forgiveness, to admit our desperation for him, to be forgiven so that then we can forgive. During Advent, I read a wonderful short story called The Guest by a Russian uh, author uh, from the 19th century named Nikolai Leskov. This story is set in a small town in Siberia during Tsarist Russia. And this particular town where the short story is set is a place where political exiles were sent. And so many of the townspeople there were there for nefarious reasons. They you know, were sent there by the government. Some of them were you know, Tsarist Russia, sometimes they were fine people, but the government just didn't like them. Uh, and some of them had done some horrible things. The main character in the story is named Timofey Opsipovich. I'm just going to say Timofey from there on, if you don't mind. He was an orphan at a young age, and when his parents died, he went to live with his uncle. At the age of 17, Timofey learned from another source that his parents had been very wealthy, and that he would have inherited quite an estate. But what had indeed been happening is his uncle, whom he had lived with, was siphoning money off and left Timothy with nothing. In a fit of rage, 17-year-old Timothy took a gun and went to shoot his uncle. And thankfully, he wasn't a very good shot, and he hit his uncle's hand. His uncle was quite all right, besides a minor flesh wound, but this was not worthy of execution, so they sent Timothy to exile in this town in Siberia for the rest of his life. There, Timothy was tormented day and night by anger and resentment at his uncle. Timothy was an intellectual. He was educated in religion and history and philosophy. His best friend was a simple man in the town who was a devout Christian, and often his friend would try and help Timothy see that he needed to be forgiven, but Timothy was too smart and always had an answer. He's one of those guys that knew everything about religion, but didn't have a relationship with the Lord. Now, even though Timothy didn't have a relationship with God... He read his Bible almost every day. He loved to read his Bible in the Rose Garden outside in the town square. One day he's reading, and he was reading the story of the time Jesus went to the man's house, the rich man's house, and the rich man doesn't even welcome him, doesn't even wash his feet. And Timothy Timothy thought and said to himself, Lord, actually he said to the Lord, Lord, if you're real, and if you came to my house, I would pull out all the stops, spare no expense. Just then, on a warm summer day, a breeze rustled the roses in which he was sitting, and he thought for sure he'd heard a voice that says, I'm coming. Timothy, this intellectual who knew everything about faith but wasn't very faithful, went home that night and told his wife, I can't get this out of my mind. Tonight, I'm not sitting at the head of the table. We're going to make a place setting for the Lord. And he left the, the, the table of honor, the seat of honor, and the plate, and everything was set out, and no one came. And the next night, no one came, and the next night, no one came. For six months, no one came. Timothy set out this place setting, and no one came. Jesus didn't show up. Just when he's about ready to give up, he hears a voice, I'm coming soon. It was Christmas Eve, and so he knew, Lord, I'm guessing you're going to come on Christmas Day, and so He told his friend the devout Christian, invited the family over for dinner, had all of this fine linen set up as far as he could afford. He said, I believe Jesus is coming on Christmas day. And his friend said, well, wouldn't you think if the Lord's really coming, he'd want more people to get invited that were, you know, the kinds of people he hung out with in the Bible. So Timothy said, you're absolutely right. Let's invite that Estonian guy and the Polish guy, Ukrainian guy, let's invite even the murderer. We all know he's guilty. Let's invite everybody from the town dinner they all packed in and timothy is the food is ready and he's he's pacing and he's pacing and jesus is not showing up and finally he just says you know the food's getting cold and he said the lord's prayer and as soon as he said amen to eat noise at the door and the door burst open and a blizzard was pouring in it was snowing outside And an old man was there, crunched with a glow about him. The people were terrified. They huddled into the corner of the room. Timothy rushed over and put his face to the ground and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. One of the guests shut the door. Another three guests got candles and lit them. And the glow from the man began to go away as the candles began to light his face. And Timothy realized that the man was his uncle, He took his uncle by the hands and brought him to the place of honor, the seat at the table. And the uncle said, my life is in ruins, my son. For years I have been wandering Siberia looking for you, but on this night I was caught in a blizzard about ready to give up hope, about ready to just say it is enough. When I met a man, a stranger, on the way to your house, and he said, go to that house where the light is on, you can have my plate. You can have my seat at the table. And Timothy's uncle was too weak, too frozen to make it to the house. And so this stranger took his hands and brought him to the front door and vanished. And Timothy said to his uncle, I know who it was who brought you to my house. It was the Lord. And he forgave him and allowed him, safe passage, to stay with him there at the house for the rest of his life. Timothy learns to love because he was confronted by Jesus, the lover. Jesus set him free from his own slavery to anger. Jesus led Timothy to forgive. It is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that makes you and I able to love in the first place. You must receive the love of Jesus before you can love like Jesus. Which leads me to the third aspect of John's command to love. Once you place your faith in Jesus and receive his Holy Spirit, you can become more loving by spending time with the lover. When you spend time with Jesus in worship like you're doing right now, through prayer, in his word, you will be compelled to actions outside of yourself, beyond your inner circle of friends. Being around Jesus has a missional ascending effect. You know, sometimes we wonder, and I, we're at a very pragmatic culture and age, what is, is Sunday worship even, like, worth coming to? Um, we don't do a lot of stuff here. We do more stuff for the community on the other days of the week than we do when we gather here, and we have our food, and we sing these songs. Is this anything? Did you know that there has not been any major missionary movement in the history of the church that has not begun at a prayer gathering or a worship gathering? It is worship where Jesus comes in through the songs and through the scriptures and through the silence and through the prayers and hopefully through the word of God and definitely through the sacrament. It comes in and he changes us from the inside out. There's not a more important place you could be on a Sunday than at worship. It may not feel like it all the time. Oh, but he's working in us. Being around Jesus forces us out to love he was born for love he embodies god's love and he rescues us with love if you are longing longing for more of the god life love in you i implore you let's come to jesus lord jesus lover of our souls rescuer bless you on this christmas sunday we recognize and try and come to grips with the awesome reality that you left heaven. You left a spiritual existence and forever changed your person, the way you exist. You became a human. You are embodied now in a resurrection body. Oh, what love. Lord, help us. Help us to surrender, to trust you, to receive your love, to receive your forgiveness so that we can be filled with your life and be a blessing to this world and to each other.